This is a recording of Charity in Defending the Kingdom by Daniel C. Peterson, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 1, Issue 1, 2012, as the editor's introduction. Read by Brad Haymond. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. On Maintaining Fairness and Charity With one striking exception, leaders and members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are, and always have been, flawed people. No better quality of human is available. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, the Apostle Paul said, referring to the gospel and its mortal ministers, that the excellency of the power may be of God, and not of us. Although we obviously shouldn't be surprised at it, the church's human side is sometimes jarring, and, if permitted, can cause disillusionment. It's urgently important, therefore, even for our own sake, that we clothe ourselves with the bond of charity, as with a mantle, which is the bond of perfectness and peace. Failure to do so can be spiritually lethal. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, taught Jesus, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Christians worldwide regularly pray, rather dangerously, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Why is this dangerous? If ye forgive men their trespasses, the Savior explained, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And nobody is guiltless. Use every man after his desert, says Shakespeare's Hamlet, and who should scape whipping? My disciples in days of old, says the Lord, sought occasion against one another, and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. In our dispensation, Thomas Marsh became so preoccupied with Joseph Smith's perceived imperfections, that he forfeited his apostleship and was excommunicated in 1839. This wasn't because Joseph was perfect. He has sinned, the Lord flatly declared. Fortunately, my sins aren't announced in Scripture. But, adds the Lord, quote, He that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin, close quote. Rebaptized in 1857, Marsh expressed regret for his nearly two decades outside the church. Quote, I got a beam in my eye, and I thought I could discover a mote in Joseph's eye. I was completely darkened. Close quote. Contrast his attitude with that of the well-educated Lorenzo Snow, who boarded with the Smiths for a time. Quote, I can fellowship the president of the church, even if he does not know everything I know. I saw the imperfections in Joseph. I thanked God that he would put upon a man who had those imperfections the power and authority he placed upon him. For I knew that I myself had weaknesses, and I thought there was a chance for me. I thanked God that I saw those imperfections. I feel like shouting hallelujah all the time, declared Joseph's close friend and disciple Brigham Young, when I think that I ever knew Joseph Smith. Significantly, his dying words were Joseph 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 observing others weaknesses perhaps even with sorrow is very different from dwelling on them charity wrote the apostle paul rejoiceth not in iniquity 
This surely applies to our fellow members, bishops, Relief Society presidents, and stake presidents, and to the good but imperfect men who have been and are called to lead the church. It also applies to those who write books for the saints and, yes, to those who write for and edit Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture. A year after leaving the American presidency, Theodore Roosevelt delivered a speech in Paris entitled Citizenship in a Republic. It is not the critic who counts, he said. Quote, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. It would be unrealistic, though, to expect indulgent charity towards our foibles and flaws from all those outside the church. Some will grant it, surely, but some, and particularly those residing in the great and spacious building of Lehi's vision, will certainly not. Scriptural prophecies seem to indicate that, while the restored gospel will spread throughout the earth, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will always be a minority, which is to say that the majority of humankind will continue to be either ignorant of or indifferent toward the Church's claims, or, as depicted in Lehi's vision, will sneer at them and find them and us ridiculous. We should not be dismayed when we encounter such reactions. They were predicted many centuries ago. Sometime in the fall of 1974, I read an article in the Georgetown University newspaper about the open house for the newly built Washington, D.C. temple. I particularly remember its mockery of the temple's new president, a retired Singer Corporation executive, whose hand the author had shaken during a press reception. It was a hand, the article sneered, that had undoubtedly demonstrated and sold many sewing machines in its time. Georgetown is a Catholic school, and I recall wondering whether the article would have been as contemptuous toward Peter, whom Catholics revere as the first pope, but whose hands had undoubtedly mended and cast a great many fishing nets in his earlier years. Or, even towards Jesus himself, whose youthful hands, we're told, were busy in his father's workshop. Ironically, such smug elitism would have been quite congenial to those who eventually killed Jesus. In the Gospel of John, for example, the leaders of the Jews send officers to arrest the Savior, but their plans fail. Quote, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never spake a man like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Today some secular critics find American Mormons culturally unfashionable, because, among other things, we're overwhelmingly middle class, which simply isn't cool. By contrast, such critics sometimes romanticize poverty. In that light, it has amused me to notice, while rereading Peter Brown's classic, The World of Late Antiquity, 
how often brown refers to the middle-class character and the middle-brow culture of christianity during that period by two hundred he writes quote, the christian communities were not recruited from among the humble and oppressed they were groupings of the lower middle classes and of the respectable artisans of the cities far from being deprived these people had found fresh opportunities and prosperity in the roman empire Close quote. it's debatable by the way whether even the earliest christians were truly poor peter owned his own fishing boat and his house in capernaum was fairly substantial brown's description recalls nineteenth-century english mormon converts who were primarily craftsmen and industrial laborers not the desperately poor charles dickens noticed this when in june eighteen sixty three he visited the london docks to watch eight hundred latter-day saints board an emigrant ship for america i should say he wrote quote, that most familiar kinds of handicraft trades were represented here farm laborers shepherds and the like had their full share of representation but i doubt if they preponderated close quote. to the rout and overthrow of all my expectations he reported the emigrants were quote, the pick and flower of england close quote. another point of elite criticism focuses on mormonism's simple teachings sometimes dismissed as shallow and the absence of trained theologians among its lay leaders listen again however to peter brown on ancient christianity quote, already some writers looked down from the high battlements of their classical culture at the obscure world pressing in upon them close quote. yet the second century physician and philosopher galen quote, noticed that the christians were apparently enabled by their brutally simple parables and commands to live according to the highest maxims of ancient ethics the christian apologists boasted of just this achievement plato they said had served good food with fancy dressings but the apostles cooked for the masses in a wholesome soup kitchen Close quote. but now with all this in mind is there any place in the kingdom for such a publication as interpreter emphatically yes many years ago during the early days of the foundation for ancient research and mormon studies or farms which would eventually become the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University, a very prominent leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints counseled one of the leaders of farms never to forget the Relief Society sister in Parowan. It's a principle that we, who were the leaders of farms, and then of the Maxwell Institute, tried never to forget. While we certainly attempted to make our publications and arguments academically rigorous, we also strove to ensure that they were clear and that they would on the whole be relevant and helpful to interested but non-academic members of the church we knew for example that a principal interest of our audience and of our subscribers and among the donors who generously supported our work was defense of the faith apologetics they cared and we cared about the impact of our work upon latter-day saints who might be challenged by seeming difficulties in mormon history and scripture as well as upon outsiders who might be considering the claims of the restoration interpreter has been founded at least in part to ensure that that principle of caring not merely for professional scholars and academic librarians but for ordinary latter-day saints and for religiously interested outsiders continues to be honored though we hope to adhere to high academic standards we will not forget our wider audience
but isn't the very act of engaging in academic disputes and especially of writing and publishing reviews unless of course they're entirely positive and perhaps even saccharine and fawning an offense to charity interpreter intends to carry on the tradition established with the farm's review of publishing book reviews and sometimes very substantial ones how can the former editor of the farm's review briefly under his tenure renamed the mormon studies review write about charity with a straight face there can be no question that scholars and especially reviewers who seek to be and behave as christians walk a very difficult line and this is particularly true when the issues at stake involve religion contentious disputed matters of ultimate concern and value such writers must be fair and they must not be abusive but they must tell the truth and sometimes the truth is that evidence has been deliberately or inadvertently misused or misrepresented that an argument is invalid that a thesis doesn't hold water that an agenda is misguided that something is poorly written and if a reviewer is committed to seeking and telling the truth such things must be pointed out where they seem to occur i've encountered a few people who believe that the sheer writing of a less than positive book review constitutes an illegitimate attack but i can't possibly agree writing such a review is no more intrinsically wrong than is penning a critique of a play or a musical composition writing a critical restaurant review or for that matter assigning a less than perfect grade to a student paper everything depends upon manner and tone and upon fairness fortunately although the review enjoyed a well-earned reputation for its irony and wit as well as for telling the truth as its authors perceived the truth to be i can report that in my sincere and serious judgment those who wrote for it did a very good job through nearly a quarter of a century of maintaining fairness and charity i was very proud of the farms review and the mormon studies review and interpreter a journal of mormon scripture is going to be even better as is plainly evident from this first volume it has established a high standard for itself we pledge that we will maintain that standard no introduction would be complete without acknowledging the tremendous help given by so many people to help make this publication possible i am especially grateful to don brueger and his editing team at the maxwell institute who had prepared several of the pieces in this volume for publication before the review was put on hold members of the editorial board of interpreter have put in many hours to adhere to our schedule of posting an article a week on our website and now completing this first volume i'm deeply deeply grateful to all those who have contributed thus far this has been a recording of charity in defending the kingdom by daniel c peterson originally published in interpreter a journal of mormon scripture volume one issue one two thousand twelve as the editor's introduction read by brad haymond for more information please visit mormoninterpreter.com